How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we always make sure that we are in fellowship. In the church age, God has given each of us as believers the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. But we also have the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is related to his teaching us, helping us to understand, comprehend, understand, retain, and recall uh, the doctrine that we have learned, storing it in our soul. So uh, we know that whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And the way to recover is simply through private confession of sin to God. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a confession is not some system of works. It is a grace recovery system where all we do is it, basically we're recognizing that, that, uh, that uh, all of our sins were paid for on the cross and that uh, since we have put our faith alone in Christ alone and have salvation, that our sin has... Uh, broken fellowship with the Lord, and by simply admitting it or acknowledging it to Him, uh, we are restored to fellowship instantly so that we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and can resume our spiritual advance. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we uh, open the Word. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we can gather together in the freedom of this nation to study your word. Father, we thank you that you have given us all that we need to know and that your word is clear and your revelation is lucid and that under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we can uh, understand it. We can see how it applies in our lives and indeed it teaches us to think about life as you would have us to think about it, to be uh, conform to your word is to have our thinking conform to reality. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that uh, we would be responsive to it, that we would be objective in our response to it, and that uh, it would have its transforming effect. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we continue our study tonight of the God's plan for the ages. We're studying covenants and dispensations. This is our tenth class in the subject. And tonight we're going to be in the Mosaic Covenant and the dispensation of law. Mosaic Covenant. This is one of the, uh, the Mosaic Code, the law code of the Old Testament is probably one of the most misunderstood 
uh, facets of the Bible because many people think that we are still under the Mosaic Law. Some people think that, in fact, we're still under the uh, Ten Commandments or that the Mosaic Law or the Ten Commandments were indeed a way of uh, spirituality or even salvation in the Old Testament. But that's not true, and we're going to see that tonight, both from Old Testament passages and from New Testament passages, that the purpose for the law was not to provide a way of salvation, but indeed it was to show that man needed salvation. It was to show the high standard of God, that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that man could do nothing to uh, merit God's approval. Man could do nothing to gain God's uh, uh, recognition or approbation. And so that God had to do everything. So the purpose of the Mosaic Law wasn't to provide either a spiritual life or a salvation, or salvation, but was designed to show the need for salvation. And uh, everything in the ceremonial law was designed to be a picture, sort of a visual aid, a training aid, to help the Jews of the Old Testament learn about God's grace and to learn about the need for salvation, and it all anticipated both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that the sacrifices in and of themselves, as the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, so they were not in and of themselves salvific, but they portrayed, they anticipated. So the object of faith in the Old Testament was still Jesus Christ, as he was revealed in the Old Testament, but it anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ. It was based on the promise that there would be a Savior. And, of course, the full extent to which the average uh, Israelite understood uh, everything is, is up to debate because we don't know exactly how much they understood, but they did understand enough to know that God would provide a way of salvation and that they could not be saved on their own. Now, last time... And the time before, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, which is the overarching covenant to understand the relationship of Israel uh, to God's plan, that in the Abrahamic covenant, God had called out Abraham and made him uh, an unconditional contract, an unconditional covenant that God would provide him, or that through Abraham, God would develop a nation, a special nation through whom God would bless all of the, all of the nations in human history. And then, as part of the development of that, that uh, nation, God is going to give them another covenant. Now, the way this looks, just to put it out a timeline so that you can start putting this together a little bit, is that Abraham lives about 2000, approximately 2000 B.C. Now, from Abraham to Moses is a little over 500 years. Moses is born approximately 1500, a little before, probably about 1420 BC, uh, 1520 B.C., excuse me, and the Exodus takes place 1446 B.C. And just in case you were watching the uh, mini-series they did in the beginning on television, Sunday and Monday night, no, the Pharaoh, once again, was not Ramses II. Ramses II did not reign until about the uh, 13th century B.C., approximately 1250 or so, if you take the traditional dating, if you take the dating of uh, some others who are trying to uh, reform Egyptian chronology. It was even later than that, closer to the 11th century. But uh, the time of the Exodus is clearly fixed by biblical chronology. 
because it is stated in 1 Kings that it was uh, approximately uh, 400 years, uh, or approximately 400 years before Solomon laid the temple. And we know when uh, Solomon laid the foundation for the temple, so we can just extrapolate from that and add our numbers up, and we come up with 1446 B.C. for the date of the Exodus. And it is at that time, from the date of the Exodus in 1446, about a month later they landed, or they arrived at Mount Sinai, and for one year the nation camped out at the base of Sinai. They were not allowed. Scripture tells us that they erected these enormous piles of stone. Uh, these enormous rock cairns or pillars around the base of Mount Sinai as a boundary because God's presence was up on the mountain and that sanctified the mountain and so man could not go directly into God's presence. And of course, all of that indicated once again that God's absolute, God is absolute righteousness and therefore man who is, uh, minus R, that is relative righteousness, when we compare ourselves to one another, we might have uh, a measure of righteousness, but when we compare ourselves to the absolute standard of God's perfect righteousness, we all fall short. Scripture says, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So the righteousness of God was the issue. The boundary stones were set up at the base of Sinai to emphasize to the people that they could not come into the presence of of God, And if they did, they would instantly die. Now, that's a serious penalty, but it was to stress the reality of our relationship with God, that God is absolutely righteous and the penalty for sin is death. It is uh, spiritual death, and if there is not uh, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, then that will culminate in eternal condemnation. And it is during this one-year period, therefore, when the entire uh, Israelite nation is camped out at the foot of Sinai, that they become a nation. Before that, they are a, just an ethnic group. There were approximately 70 people that went with Jacob to, uh, uh, into Egypt in approximately 1800 B.C., and by 1446, there's somewhere between two and three million Jews in the land of, in Egypt, and then God delivers them, redeems them, brings them out of Egypt through the ten, uh, the ten plagues on the Egyptians, uh, culminating in the Passover, which is a picture of salvation. And it is at this time at Sinai that they become a nation. Before that, they are merely a, an ethnic group. At this point, they became a nation, and in order to have a nation, you need to have three things. The first thing that you need is a people. The second thing that you need is a land. And a third thing that you need is a law code. And that is what the Mosaic Covenant is. It is a law code to provide. It is the constitution for the nation Israel. It has basically three sections. It has the introduction, which is a summary of the principles underlying the entire law code, and that is what we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the ten words literally in the Hebrew. It is the, the Ten Commandments, and that's the introduction. The second part of the law has to do with the civil law 
the civil law code. And then the third section of the Mosaic law has to do with the ceremonial law. And this would have to do with the priesthood and the laws related to sacrifices and offerings, the construction of the tabernacle and everything related to that, the ceremonial calendar with all of the feast days, all of that was part of the law. Now, this is clearly stated in uh, the, the structure of the Mosaic Law is in what we have seen is in the form of an ancient 2nd millennium B.C. treaty form known as the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Suzerain means a, a great king or great lord. It's a feudal term. Vassal refers to a servant, either as an individual or a servant nation. And what we see in the ancient world is that there would be an empire or maybe a city-state that had grown to a position of power, conquered another city, another city-state, another nation, would set up satellite nations. We know this from the Hittite Empire, how they functioned even to the uh, Assyrian Empire, that this was a common way in which the great king would then tell his vassal or servant nations, the, uh, the client nation, that if you do certain things, I will then bless you and prosper you, take care of you, provide for you, protect you. And if you disobey me, if you violate my trust, if you're uh, uh, antagonistic to me, if you, if you betray me, then I will then come in and destroy all your crops and destroy your people and put you into slavery. And that became known as a suzerain vassal treaty form. And so the entire Mosaic Covenant, both, I mean, the Pentateuch in some sense, all five books are in this format but specifically the book of the covenant, Exodus 20 through chapter 40, is in the uh, format of, uh, of a suzerain vassal treaty. Deuteronomy is in that same format. And the importance of that is that it shows that these things happened during the time period that the Bible says they happened. See, the, the one, one way to attack, the, attack Christianity is to attack the authenticity of the documents that underlie Christianity. And liberalism, modern theological liberalism since the middle of the 1700s, has attacked the historical veracity of the Old Testament, claiming that uh, these things really didn't happen that way. You see, the underlying assumption of religious liberalism is that there is no actual interference of God in human history. That developed, that's the framework from which deism came from and later Unitarianism and other, other various uh, manifestations of uh, Protestant liberal theology and, uh, in the 19th century and on into the 20th century, and it attacks the historical veracity of Genesis and, and Exodus. That It really didn't happen that way. This was just the oral tradition of Israel, and it wasn't until after they returned from the captivity in Babylon that they wrote these things down. Well, that happened around 400 B.C. So 400 B.C. versus 1400 B.C. is a thousand-year difference. And so if these things didn't happen the way the Bible says they do, then we need to just throw the whole Bible out because the Bible continuously grounds every single doctrine, the doctrines of God, God's holiness, God's righteousness, doctrines of salvation. The entire Lord's table is grounded in the Passover meal. The Passover meal is based upon the reality of a space-time event in human history that occurred in 1446 B.C. when God redeemed the nation Israel and brought them out of slavery from Egypt. 
If that didn't happen the way the Bible says it happened, then Passover is meaningless, the Lord's table is meaningless, none of it portrays Christ, it's just fable, which is the conclusion that liberal theology comes to. And one of the things that, that this points out by studying the historical uh, documents of the time period is that the Suzerain Vassal Treaty Form was a unique format and structure of the time period, 1400, 1500 B.C., unique to that time. A thousand years later, they didn't know about it. Nobody wrote that way. Nobody structured things that way a thousand years later. So it shows. It's not the kind of proof like you would get in a science laboratory, but it is evidence that the Bible clearly reflects, even the way it's written reflects the fact that it was written at the time. It claimed to have been written and reflects the culture of that time period. So that is why one reason it's important to understand that. The other reason it's important to understand that is that in the structure of the Mosaic Law, uh, in this suzerain vassal treaty form, it emphasizes the fact that it has a conditional aspect to it, that the blessings are conditional, and that God views himself as the king and the nation Israel is his servant nation to fulfill certain roles in human history. And when the nation failed in disobedience to fulfill those responsibilities, then God in turn was going to punish the nation. So we have to understand the Mosaic Code as, and, and the other thing that it brings in here really, is the idea that this is one entire document. This is, you can't chop it up. You can look at the parts of it, that there's the Ten Commandments, there's the ceremonial law and civil law, but you can't separate them. There, it's one whole document. It's not many different documents. And so you can't come along and pick and choose what parts of it are applicable for today. It's either all applicable or, it's, or none of it's applicable. And we'll see why that's important as we get into our, a little further into our study. Now, we've looked at the fact that God always uh, arranges or administers his relationship with man through covenants. A covenant is a legal contract in, in the world's religious systems. Only Christianity is grounded upon law. Of course, that's in terms of some of the discussion that's going on today in relation to the, uh, the election and the importance of law. And in Western civilization, the root of the importance of law and that law is the ultimate arbiter of human relationships goes back to this biblical concept that even God establishes a legal framework for his relationships with man. It's not something that's arbitrary, that will change here or there. And so there are these eight biblical covenants that we are studying Initially, there are the Gentile covenants, the initial Edenic covenant we studied in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, which ended at the fall when, God, when man disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It abrogated the Edenic covenant, and man was expulsed, expunged from the garden. He was sent out, and the curse came upon the human race. And there was a modification of the initial creation covenant, which is called the Adamic covenant, outlined in Genesis 3:14 through 19. The human race once again failed under the Adamic covenant, and God judged the entire nation with a worldwide flood under, at the time of Noah. 
Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives, eight people total, survived, and they began a new civilization. And at the beginning of that civilization, the post-Diluvian civilization, God made a covenant with Noah. And that covenant is still in effect and will be in effect until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. This covenant governs God's relationships to the entire human race. And we went through the various provisions of the Noahic covenant. But at that time, the human race failed once again to obey God. The primary mandate under the Noahic covenant was to scatter and fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. They, instead of scattering and filling the earth, they gathered unto themselves into cities. Uh, we have the episode with the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, uh, specifically gathering themselves together, the human race, as an antagonistic structure to God, that man was going to make a name for himself in opposition to God. So rather than continue his work through the, through the Gentiles as a whole, God is going to call out a new people. This is why there is a major dispensational shift with Abraham. question comes up, why do we say that the age of Israel begins with Abraham and not with Moses? I mean, with Moses you have the nation. Well, that is because starting with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God it no longer works through the Gentiles at large. From that point on, he works exclusively through Israel, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. And so at that point, we have the introduction of the Jewish covenants. The Jewish covenants. The first and primary Jewish covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. It is these four that we look at in this first category are all unconditional and permanent. The Abrahamic covenant emphasized three things. That God would give them a land, a specific piece of real estate. It was described as being bordered by the river of Egypt, the river Euphrates, the Mediterranean, and the land west of the Jordan. So, I mean, east of the Jordan. So that is a specific piece of real estate. It is not heaven. It can't be spiritual. You can't say, well, it was physical then and it's spiritual now. Now, you see, I want to point something out. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days. Listen to the news. One thing that we're fighting and fighting and fighting in this, in this country and in our culture is hermeneutics, interpretation. Now, I want you to know, we've studied postmodernism before, that in postmodernism, the basic underlying concept is relativism. And that um, you can see that um, uh, there, there are no absolutes and everything is, is relative. Now, the way these ideas work themselves out in everyday culture is that it is important. We see it in interpretation. We saw it in the, in the presidential debates. In the very first debate, a question was posed to... Um, the two candidates as to uh, how they would handle, uh, what criteria they would use when they appointed Supreme Court justices. Now, what they said is, is illustrative of the whole problem with interpretation in this country and the problem of truth and the lack of an acceptance that there is absolute truth. One candidate said that he would appoint justices that would literally interpret the Constitution 
in the way in which the writers intended it to be applied. Notice that. He, this can, one candidate said that, that the, the authors of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, had specific intent in mind. They meant, they meant one thing. They did not mean anything else. The other candidate said, oh, it's a living document. Every generation can interpret it in a different light. Well, what he just said is it means nothing because in one generation it can mean X and in the next generation it can mean non-X, just 180 degrees opposite. Now, he didn't really say that, but that's what that means. That's exactly what that implies. It is a living document to be reinterpreted by every generation. What that means is interpretation no longer has a solid rock of an absolute that you can look at a statement and say, well, this clearly means X. And it doesn't mean anything else versus, oh, well, I think it means this. And, and so that what the writers of a statute state at one point is subject to reinterpretation and can mean something 180 degrees opposite a year later. Two years later, three years later. What's this, this thing that's going on in the news the last couple of days related to the fact that, that down in Florida there is a, a statute, there's a law code, an absolute law code approved, voted on, put into law by the, by the Florida legislature that all votes have to be certified within seven, by 5 p.m. seven days after an election. That's the law. That's an absolute. That's, there's no waffling on that. But what we see happening is you see one segment of society coming along and saying, well, you know, we really don't like what that means now, so let's make that mean something else. It really doesn't mean that we can find some kind of loophole to change the meaning of the law. They didn't mean that. If they really understood our circumstances today, they wouldn't have said that. In other words, what you're coming back and you're applying, you, you, you're oper- you've got a culture that has so uh, imbibed relativism that documents no longer mean what they say. They mean whatever I, the reader, want to, re- want to, want to read into that document. And we see this with, with Scripture, and now we're seeing it as it's impacting the interpretation of law, election code, uh, and we've seen it for, for years it's gone on, and that's why these issues aren't just political issues. They are issues that affect the way our culture views reality and truth and absolutes. And the more we get divorced from the concept that there are absolutes, and the more we live in a pagan culture that rejects moral absolutes, the more it affects things like just interpretation. What is, what is, we don't even know what meaning is anymore. And it's going to affect things like how you interpret literature, how you interpret history, and everything goes into a state of flux instead of being in a state of having some sort of absolute anchor. And that, because, what, what does that produce? That produces uncertainty, confusion, and instability. And once you have uncertainty, confusion, and instability enter into the realm of knowledge, then you can't know anything anymore. And if you can't know anything and, there, there, and you can't know anything for sure anymore, then everything becomes fluid and what's right one day is wrong the next. And who's going to uh, be in a position to determine what's right today and what's wrong tomorrow? Whoever is in power. 
And that's why power has become the ultimate trip in a postmodern culture. And you see that the term power, be sensitive to this. When you're reading news reports, when you're reading about uh, trends and you're reading about uh, different things, power. People want to be empowered. People are marginalized because they don't have power. I mean, power has been a catchword and an issue for at least 15 years. I mean, even in the in, in the Christianity, it became a, uh, a watershed term in, in, in issues in the charismatic camp 15, 20 years ago with power evangelism, power healing. Uh, it was a big word in in the whole New Age movement because now you want to get special empowerment by getting in touch with your spirit guides, etc. So, so all of this affects interpretation. And what happens, you come to Scripture, and Scripture says um, that tells Abraham that you're going to give Abraham a specific land and that it's got specific boundaries. You cannot come along and change the terms a thousand years later and say, well, now that really didn't mean what Abraham understood it to mean. It really doesn't mean a physical piece of real estate bounded by uh, those uh, given by those boundaries of the river of Egypt and Euphrates, etc., it really refers to heaven. And that is, that is just absurd. It either means, it can't mean one thing. It can't mean X at one time and non-X a thousand years later. You can't say it's, it means white and then a thousand years later say, well, it now it means black. You cannot do that. Otherwise, it just becomes meaningless. And that's why people end up in mysticism in, in their religious or in their Christian experience is because they no longer know how to think. All they know how to do is how to feel because thinking is considered, uh, it, it won't get you anywhere. It really doesn't get you any kind of empowerment. It's only on the basis of, uh, of having some kind of experience because rationality has now been rejected in favor of irrationality. It means black at one time and white another time. That's pure irrationalism. And that always happens. I never forget I had a, one of my, the head of the philosophy department. When I went to, I went to an excellent Roman Catholic school, uh, university for a master's in philosophy. And the reason that was good is because their presupposition was that there were absolutes. If I'd gone to Rice, secular university, their presupposition is there are no absolutes. So at least you're operating within a general theistic framework in a Roman Catholic school. And um, the head of the department would, used to say that you always have these cycles in history where you go from rationalism to skepticism to mysticism. That's always the cycle, and then you go back through it again. And that's always the cycle. You can trace it through ancient civilizations. Modern man was rationalistic in the Enlightenment, and then after the Enlightenment, he became skeptical. 19th century liberalism, you reject the supernatural, you reject the Bible, you have skepticism, but man can't live on the basis of skepticism, so you have to jump into sort of an irrational leap of faith. And that's modern existentialism, and you just believe it's true, and you have existential Christians, we call them charismatics, and you have existential uh, 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 unbelievers, and they're just out there hopeless, trying to uh, find meaning in whatever their current experience may be. And in our day now, it's, it's prosperity, and next year it'll be something different. But that's just a way in which, just to give you a little application why it's so important to have a consistent 
uh, interpretation of Scripture based on its literal meaning and what the author intended. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant promised three things to the Jews, land, I mean to Abraham, land, seed, that he would have both a, a, a descendants that would be as innumerable, the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore, and that through them all nations would be blessed. Each of those segments is expanded on by subsequent covenants, which we have yet to examine. The real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Those three covenants are not put into effect until the millennial kingdom, so we won't get there for some time. But after the Abrahamic covenant, God initiated one temporary covenant, with Israel, providing them with a law code for the nation called the Mosaic Covenant, and it introduces the dispensation of law. So we're going to look, this is our outline for the Mosaic Covenant, the scripture, the persons, the provisions, the token, the purposes, and the present status. So that's the basic outline of our discussion on the Mosaic Covenant. The scripture, it covers everything from Exodus 20, verse 1 through Deuteronomy 28:58. That's not the end of Deuteronomy. The last two chapters of Deuteronomy cover the Palestinian covenant. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 cover the Palestinian covenant. Deuter- Exodus 20, verse 1 to Deuteronomy 28:58. So that includes the second half of Exodus. Exodus has 40 chapters. So the second half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and all of, almost all of Deuteronomy. The covenant proper called the Book of the Covenant is in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 40. The persons, God and Israel. God makes the covenant with, and he gives it to Moses, but he is making the covenant with the nation Israel. At this point, this is the birth of the nation, so that we can speak of Abraham as the father of the the people, of the Jewish people, and Moses, the great lawgiver, as the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, it is signed and sealed by the signature of the Shekinah glory that goes before Israel in the wilderness. The Shekinah glory settled on the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and it is signified by the shedding of blood in the sacrifices. So the scripture and the persons are God, party of the first part. Every covenant, remember, has two parties. It's a contract, party of the first part, party of the second part. We've seen in unconditional covenants, God is part of the first part, binds himself alone to the contract. He promises to bless regardless of the behavior of the, uh, of the uh, party of the second part. In a conditional covenant, God says the blessings that I am bestowing upon you will be conditioned on your behavior. And that is why the Mosaic covenant is called a conditional covenant. It is also a temporary covenant. Third, there are provisions. The law of Moses has 613 commandments, not just 10. It has 613 commandments, and it covers the, all the aspects of civil life and ceremonial life. The key element in the ceremonial code is the element of blood and the blood sacrifice because blood is reminiscent of physical death. Physical death is a, is a concrete illustration of spiritual death. 
Genesis 2.17, God told Adam, If you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. That's spiritual death. They did not die for some 900 years. That was physical death. Physical death is a consequence of spiritual death. So that the physical death, the blood sacrifice, is a picture of what is going on in the spiritual realm, spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. The blood sacrifices of the Old Testament never removed the sin, but they did portray the fact that the Messiah, who was the perfect Lamb of God, the Old Testament sacrifice was based on a lamb that was without spot or blemish. Jesus Christ was called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the of the world. Isaiah 53 predicted that it was the Messiah's death that would provide the permanent solution for spiritual death. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins as a substitute. He died spiritually. It was between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that God the Father poured out upon Jesus Christ the condemnation for every sin in human history. But Jesus Christ was perfect righteousness, and he did not become sin, but God the Father judicially imputed to him the sin So the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God may be found in us. Because when we put our faith and trust in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's it's put in our account, as it were. And so when we are justified, it is God the Father looking at our account and saying, and seeing the righteousness of Christ and declaring us to be just. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ did on the cross and its application to us. Now, the token for the uh, Mosaic Code is the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. Now, this is one of those misunderstood things in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was not observed until the Mosaic Law. Abraham did not observe the Sabbath. It was not observed by Noah. It wasn't observed in the antediluvian period. The Sabbath is not instituted until... uh, you come to Exodus uh, 31. It was never expected of the Gentiles. Not one time, one of the most interesting studies I did was to go through all of the major and minor prophets and to analyze all of the sections where they uh, uttered God's condemnation on the nations, on Edom, on Moab, on Babylon, on the Philistines, on Tyre and Sidon, uh, on, on the Egyptians and analyze what is the basis for God's condemnation of those nations. And in every case, they're either condemned because they have been hostile to Israel, and God said, those who treat you lightly, I will curse. So that's the category there. Because they are treating Israel lightly, God is going to condemn them and judge them. Or they're condemned because of idolatry, and that falls under the Noahic covenant, their rejection of God. They are never condemned because they violate anything that is unique to the Mosaic law. They, Israel does not apply the Sabbath law for many years. They don't apply the Sabbath law. It was not only that on the seventh day you won't work, but every seventh year you won't work, and the 49th year is, is a Sabbath year, so you don't work on the 49th year. The 50th year is a jubilee year. You don't work on the 50th year. No work at all, all year long. It was a sign of faith and trust in God that God would provide everything they needed. 
they wouldn't have to work. God would take care of everything. It was a supreme illustration of the faith rest drill, that God has provided everything for us, and we simply rest and relax in it. But they did not do that. So at the end of... Um, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, they are removed from the land for 70 years because there have been 70 sabbatical years that they have failed to obey. And God says, so now I will give the land rest for 70 years because you have failed to keep my Sabbaths. He never did that with the, with the Gentiles. He never once judges any Gentile nation because they failed to keep the Sabbath. But he took Israel out of the land for 70 years because they failed to keep the Sabbath laws. And so, once again, the uh, Sabbath is all, the, whole, the whole point I'm making is that the Sabbath was never expected of Gentiles. It was not mandated of Gentiles. It was not mandated of anyone prior to the Mosaic Law. It is a unique sign of the Mosaic Law that you are in a contract with God called the Mosaic Law. If the Mosaic Law has ended, Sabbath observance has ended. And you can't come along and say, well, Sunday's the Sabbath. That's just playing fast and loose with interpretation. Sabbath never meant the first day of the week. It's never used that way at all in Scripture. Let's look at some... some uh, well, before we do that, let's let me just run through this. Remember, we're talking about the... Theocratic dispensations, the age of the Gentiles we looked at initially, and now we're looking at the age of Israel. The uh, Edenic covenant began the dispensation of human perfection, which ended with the fall, and the Adamic covenant began the dispensation of conscience. That ended with the Noahic covenant, which instituted the dispensation of civil government. That's all the age of, of the Gentiles. Then we get into the age of Israel, which begins with the Abrahamic covenant, and it's divided into two major periods, the age of the patriarchs, and then with the Mosaic covenant, the age of the law. But even in the age of the law, as I'll point out, there are subdivisions. They're sort of like sub-dispensations. Remember, we define the term dispensation as from the Greek word oikonomos, meaning an economy or administration of God. So when God changes the way he administers human history, that's a dispensational shift. So when God set things up in the Mosaic Law with a strict theocracy, God would be the king of Israel, and then comes along, and because of Israel's failure, he gives them a human king in Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Isn't that in some sense a change of the way God's administering human history? So that's a, like a sub-dispensation. So you have... The theocracy, then the united monarchy, then the divided monarchy, then the exile in Babylon, and then the post-exilic period. And that breaks down the age of Israel. And I'll come back and give that to you in detail and a little, a little bit longer. And it ends in a transition age called the Messianic Age, which is the next dispensation which covers the ministry of the life of Christ. But right now, we're right here looking at this period from the Mosaic Law up to the cross. This is the age in which the Mosaic Law is in effect. Exodus 31 is the institution of the Sabbath. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, this is an expansion on, I think it's the sixth commandment. Uh, uh, yeah, sixth com- I think it's the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. I may be wrong there. I've never memorized the order. But there God said, you will work for seven de- six days and rest on the seventh because I worked for six days and rest on the seventh. So it goes back to creation. These mandates, notice, are based on the, what happened during the creative week in Genesis 1. If that didn't take place in a literal six-day, six 24-hour day period with a seventh-day, 24-hour day of rest, then a Jew could come along and say, Oh, gee, those were really six, six periods of time that were thousands of years long. So, I don't have to rest for 7,000 years. I mean, each one of the, you know, that's the day-age theory in interpreting Genesis 1, is that those, day, those ages, each day represented an age. They try to ram, cram, and jam the uh, uh, historical geological ages, uh, Jurassic age and Pleistocene age and all the other ages into, um, into those six days. It doesn't fit, but... People try to get away with that. That way they don't have to, they can try to live as if uh, evolution is true and the Bible is true and have this tremendous inconsistency. But the Jews realized that, that you had to take Genesis 1 literally. I mean, that's what this law is based on. It's based on a literal seven 24-hour day cycle. If those days in Genesis 1 aren't seven literal 24-hour days, then the whole Sabbath law falls apart. It's irrelevant. It's based on something that's false. Because God says the reason you're doing it is because that's the way I did it. But if God didn't do it that way, guess what? That makes the law meaningless. All of the Bible hangs together. You can't go in with a razor blade and say, well, this is allegorical and this is... uh, uh, this really meant that, and, and well, that just is a reflection of their uh, sort of a pre-scientific understanding of things. Uh, well, you can't do that. I mean, everything fits together in a perfect, harmonious whole. Fragmenting it then it has, it's like a domino effect. It affects every, uh, it will eventually affect every other doctrine. Every major doctrine in Scripture is first articulated in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And if those first 11 chapters did not happen the way the Bible says they happen, then every major doctrine in Scripture is grounded on a false historical basis. And so that's why history matters. That's why people come along and they attack the historicity of the Gospels, the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is because if they can be successful, and they think they are, in destroying the historicity there, then they don't have to pay attention to the rest of us. At least the unbeliever realizes that. I'm amazed how many Christians don't realize that. They want to have some kind of compromise. But the unbeliever realizes that you either believe the whole thing literally or you don't. You can't compromise. So God says in his explanation of the sabbatical principle in verse 14, Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath... 
For it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Now, the Lord took this seriously, the death penalty to anyone who violates the Sabbath. You cut your grass on the Sabbath, you rake leaves on the Sabbath, it's a death penalty. That would make many of us happy if that were true today because that would give us a great excuse not to uh, get out there and do anything like that and we could have one day off. But it doesn't mean you can't watch football. No, I, I actually know one, one world-class Old Testament professor who keeps the Sabbath, which he thinks is Sunday, and one time in a conversation he was asked, well, how do you keep the Sabbaths on Sunday? He says, I don't watch football. Verse 15, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. Notice the emphasis there, Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Notice it's tied to the covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth But on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Now, I've already made the point, but I want to emphasize it again. Notice, he says, the reason you're doing that is the pattern was in creation. If the pattern's not in creation, then there's no basis for the the six-day cycle. Now, the reason this is stressed is because God is teaching a spiritual principle through the Sabbath. And that is that in the day that you don't work you are saying visually by your actions that you are resting and relaxing in my provision for you. See, that's the function of the Sabbath, of God's initial rest in Genesis 1. God didn't rest because he was tired. God does not labor. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. God did not say, oh, I just need to sit back. I spent a lot of work creating all these neutrons and protons and electrons and and uh, the solar system, and I just need to sit back, and, and, uh, and after, especially after creating man and woman, that just took it all out of me, so I need to put my feet up and, and recover a little bit. That wasn't the purpose for God's resting. God's resting was because He had provided everything necessary for man's sustenance. And so He stopped work. And that was the point in the rest was it exemplified that Israel was completely resting in God's sufficient provision for them. That God would take care of them, just like on the, uh, when they were in the wilderness and they were uh, complaining and griping about the food and God gave them manna. God gave manna. He said, you only take enough for that day. It's sufficient. You're going to trust me for the next day. Live one day at a time. I will give you food for that day if you... Take manna, you go out there and you stuff your pockets and take it home so that you'll have some for tomorrow. Then what would happen the next day, they would look into the pantry and there were maggots and worms and flies and the manna had just rotted because God was teaching them to rest in His provision day to day. But on the sixth day, God gave them a double portion of manna. And the manna that they kept over into the seventh day did not rot at all. But if it was any other day and they had it for more than 24 hours, it rotted. And the purpose is to show that God was taking care of them. Same thing when it came to the sabbatical year, every seventh year. No work all year long. 
That means that they were trusting God. God was going to take care of everything. It had all kinds of side benefits, but that wasn't the purpose. It wasn't to let the land grow fallow. It wasn't to improve the fertility of the land. That was a side benefit. It was to show that during that year, God was going to provide for the sustenance of the nation, and that would be a testimony to all of the nations. Exodus 31 establishes the principle. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to the nation. So he is reiterating to them and summarizing the law. That's why it's called Deuteronomos. Deutero is second, Namos is law. It is a restatement of the law to the uh, conquest generation. The Exodus generation had died because of their disobedience, because when they came to Kadesh Barnea the first time, they wouldn't go into the land because they said, oh, there's, there's giants and there's walled fortifications and the people are as, as numerable as, as grasshoppers. There's too many people. We can't conquer them. And God said the issue wasn't to see if you could conquer them. The point was to, to just know the lay of the land because I already gave them to you. And because you've been disobedient, none of you are going to go into the land. So the Exodus generation was carnal. They did not trust God and His provision. So they all had to die off before their children could go into the land. So Moses restates the law to them and reminds them of the Sabbath law. Verse 13, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God in it. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner. That means the alien that's in the land that's not a Jew, the Gentile that's there visiting. Your sojourner who stays with you, that means you can't get away with saying, okay, well, I'm not going to cook supper tonight, but you go cook supper. Um, I'm not going to rake the leaves, but you go out and rake the leaves for me. Nobody did any work. So that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Verse 15. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Notice, it was not only a sign of the covenant, but it was to remind them of their slavery in Exodus. So it is not, therefore, not to be observed by anyone who was not brought out of Egypt. Are you a Gentile? Were your ancestors brought out of Egypt? No. The Sabbath is not for you. It's to remind the nation that they had once been a slave in Egypt. So, once again, from this passage, we see that it was not related to Gentiles, but only to Jews. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So, this adds something new to our understanding of the Sabbath. So, the uh, the Seventh Day Adventists who uh, want to have church on Sunday and want to—I mean, on Saturday—and call that the Sabbath. Uh, they don't have any le- a leg to stand on theologically or biblically because they are not Jews, and the Sabbath was never intended for a non-Jew. Exodus 20 verse 10. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. This is not talking about eternal life. It's talking about the fact that that God would not discipline them. You know, there's a promise that says, um, I always love this one, just to give you a little 
chuckle this evening, a promise that says that, that honor your father and your mother because then you'll have long life. I heard a sermon one time where people said, you know, I used to know people who lived a long time, lived in the 80s and 90s, and it was because they had learned to obey their parents. They always honored their parents, so God gave them a long life. That's not what that means. The reason they had a long life is because there's another law in the Mosaic Law, and that is if you're a rebellious teenager, then uh, your parents are to take you out in public square and stone you to death. Because God understood that if the next generation doesn't learn authority orientation, then it will destroy the nation. So you root, root it out and destroy the evil at its core. And so rebellious, antagonistic teenagers were to be stoned in the uh, town square and the parents were supposed to cast the first stone. And uh, that's why they, it says, Honor your father and your mother and you will live long. You just have to study the Bible in context, and it makes wonderful sense. So here it says that um, I gave them, God says, I took them out of the land of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, I gave them my statutes, and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. If not, according to the law, God's going to discipline the nation, and they're going to be miserable. Uh, or excuse me, this, I said Exodus, this is Ezekiel 20, verses 10 through 12. Um, Ezekiel 20:12 and also I gave them my sabbaths to be a sign between me and them. Now who's the them in that passage? Gentiles? No. It's Jews. I gave them my sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And then I'll skip down a little bit to Ezekiel 20 Verse 20, and sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. That refers back to the passage in Exodus, or in Deuteronomy. They profane my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. And then eventually this is applied in Ezekiel to the problem at the time of the, uh, at, the, uh, at the exile, the Babylonian captivity, because the subsequent generations also failed to observe the Sabbaths, so the whole nation was taken out of the land. So that is the token, the Sabbath is the token, the sign of the, uh, the, sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now the purposes of the Mosaic Covenant, what are the purposes? In, I want to cover this in three areas. There are purposes in relation to Israel, purposes in relation to the Gentiles, and purposes in relation to sin. And I'll just cover the first one or two tonight. We'll cover the third one in relation to sin next time. In relation to Israel, it was, the law was to keep Israel a distinct people. That's why when you come to a passage like uh, Leviticus 11.42... It says, whatever crawls on its belly, whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet, in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. They had a specific dietary code that was designed to separate them and distinguish them from everybody else. It wasn't for health. I've made that point clear because when God came along in, in Acts chapter 10 and uh, told uh, Peter that he could now eat all of the unclean things, it wasn't because Peter... And the Jews at that time suddenly discovered hygiene and that suddenly discovered how to uh, uh, properly cook shrimp and, and oysters and take care of, uh, 
of uh, pork and cook it properly. There was no hygienic shift in uh, 35, 36 A.D. that was any different from uh, 1400 B.C. The point was that all of these things, in one way or another, exemplified uh, something that was forbidden in the law relating and, and symbolized the effect of sin on mankind. So had, they had a distinct law. They, they were supposed to dress in a distinct manner. The men were forbidden to cut the corners of their beard. Why? Because that was not simply a style, merely a style. It wasn't merely the style of the pagans around them, but it was how specifically how the pagan priests, the priests of Baal, uh, what was part of their ritual. That was how they configured themselves so that Israel was not to dress in the same way or have the same styles or mannerisms as the pagan culture around him. That's one reason why they were forbidden to have tattoos. That's also listed in Leviticus chapter 11. That, uh, and it's interesting, I've done a study of this and I'm still working on it, but um, there was an a interesting uh, exhibition on body art and tattooing and piercing at uh, uh, the New York uh, Museum of Natural History last year, and I picked up a rather extensive scholarly book on the history of body art. And uh, one of the authors says that, and, and if you think about it, back in the 1950s, the only place you went where you saw a lot of body piercing, scarification, tattooing, was to National Geographic among pagan societies. And that that's where this has come from. And this one author makes the point, although none of these guys are believers are coming at it from this perspective, uh, Christian perspective or anything, they're just dealing with the history, that it wasn't until America made a major shift in the way it thought in the mid-60s that opened Western civilization up to tattooing. And one of the things that one of the writers points out is that scarification, which you see among uh, many of the tribes in Africa where they come and they, they cut themselves. And, and I remember going to seminary with a, with a guy who was from, I think it was Nigeria, I may be wrong, but his tribe is part of the uh, ritual of coming into an adult. They went through all these acts and, and they decorated the body with scars and they would cut themselves, uh, cut their faces and their arms and, and he just had these scars all over himself as body decoration. And it has to do with the way the pagan mindset tends to view the body. And so what happened was because in the 60s we went through a, a, a worldview shift in America that all of a sudden it opened uh, American culture up to, to uh, now looking with approval on body art. But up until then, when there's still a, a Christian influence on society, this was always viewed as not being acceptable. And uh, I, there's a lot to that. It's forbidden in the Mosaic Law, and that's one of the reasons it's forbidden. It's because these things that exemplify are, are symptoms of pagan type of thing. I'm not saying it's sin, but these are symptoms of a way that the pagans look at the world around them that these things were forbidden to Israel. So they were to be distinct, and that was one purpose of the law. And a second purpose of the law was to provide a rule of life for the Old Testament believer. The Mosaic law was for the believer and unbeliever in Israel. But the ceremonial law was for the believer. And the ceremonial law provided a rule of life. It gave them a focus for eternal salvation. It explained the gospel. It portrayed the person and work of Jesus Christ as he would come. Well, I'm going to stop there. Our time's up. And next time we'll come back because we have some important passages to look at.
in Ephesians and in Galatians on the law in relation to Gentiles and the law in relationship to sin. Remember, Jesus Christ, according to uh, Romans, Jesus Christ was the end of the law, clearly stated. So he fulfilled the law, and at the crucifixion, the law was ended. So the Mosaic law is no longer in effect. Instead, we would enter with the cross a new dispensation, the dispensation of the church age based on grace. Not that grace wasn't present in the Old Testament, but that grace comes into a clearer, sharper focus in the present dispensation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the time we've had to study your word. We thank you that it is so clear that salvation is a work that you have performed on our behalf and that there is nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins and that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So from that we know that there is nothing we do to earn salvation. It is simply a matter of our own decision whether or not we accept the free gift that you have given us of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf on the cross. Father, we pray that you'd challenge us with the things that we've studied to help us further understand how you have created things and how you have worked things out in human history and that we may be encouraged and strengthened in our understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.